Bernstein, Drew Heinz, Curator in Charge of the Department of Drawings and Prints here at the Met. And I am delighted to welcome you to the second podcast with uh, the group Brother, Brother, Brother. Our program uh, is presented in conjunction with the exhibition World War I and the Visual Arts, which is on view until January 7th. And you are sitting right now in, the, in those very galleries of the exhibition. Um, uh, the show is also the subject of the current Met Bulletin. There's also a page dedicated to the exhibition and related blogs at metmuseum.org. Um, the exhibition is organized to commemorate the anniversary of World War I. This exhibition and the related publication focuses on the impact of the war on the visual arts and highlights the diverse ways artists represented the horrors of modern warfare. The exhibition, drawn mainly from the collection of the Met and supplemented with select loans, includes prints, drawings, photographs, illustrated books, posters, periodicals, as you can see, World War I trading cards from the Met's celebrated verdict collection, and other documentary material. Um, we are very grateful to the general delegation of the government of Flanders to the USA for making this evening's program possible and for their support of all education programs related to this exhibition and to the Schiff Foundation for making the exhibition possible as well. So without further ado, I will turn this over to Wyndham Lewis, Christian Lewis, and Jeremy Sartori, the host of podcast Brother, Brother, Brother. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Nadine. Hello, and welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. We're very happy everyone could be here. Uh, first, I wanted to say thank you to Nadine Ornstein, Jennifer Farrell, Jillian Pfifferling, and Talia Steinman in the drawing, Department of Drawings and Prints for being such accommodating hosts and putting the show together. Flanders House for supporting World War I and the visual arts, and patrons and donors of the Met who made this spectacular exhibition possible. And lastly, to the Met for being New York's premier podcasting venue. <laughs> I'm so glad we worked out all the kinks uh, from the first time we did this, so we've clearly learned a lot of lessons. Um, so first, just to get started, uh, a little bit about Brother, Brother, Brother. Um, it's a podcast I host with, uh, with my brother, Wyndham Lewis, and his other brother, who I'm not actually related to, uh, at the other end of this table, Jeremy Sartori. Um, each of us was born a decade apart, so in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, um, respectively, all to different uh, parental permutations. Um, so basically, we all grew up in different places uh, throughout the U.S., U.K., um, and only met for the first time in 2006, and actually realized today this was the first time that all three of us and our producer was in the, in the same room, um, so at a coffee shop about 45 minutes before we started. Um, so, you know, for anybody wondering what a podcast is, um, it's, uh, it's kind of like on-demand radio, um, so I guess that just kind of proves that, that history repeats itself in some sense. Um, you know, 100 years after, uh, after people were listening to the radio routinely, we're all huddled back around sort of listening to our stories. Um, as for anybody who's wondering why our family is so complicated, uh, you are welcome to ask any one of the several of our parents who is here today, <laughs> um, but, but not us. Um, so as far as World War I in the arts, um, you know, we're, we're thrilled to be hosting the second episode um, and a live event from, from World War I and the visual arts uh, at the Met. And for anyone listening to the podcast at home, um, I really couldn't recommend it more. It, it runs through January 7th. Um, so definitely come check it out. Uh, the exhibition was organized to commemorate the anniversary of World War I, focusing on the impact of the war uh, on visual art. And moving chronologically from its outbreak to the decade after the armistice, the exhibition highlights the diverse ways that artists represented some of the horrors of modern warfare. <clears throat> um, the works 
by artists including uh, Otto Dix, Nevinson, Gross, Kolwitz, Legere, and Severini um, reflect a variety of responses ranging from nationalist enthusiasm to a more somber reflection on the carnage and mass devastation. Um, it also features our antecedent and Wyndham's namesake, Wyndham Lewis, uh, so thank you, nepotism. Um, and in sum, this exhibition reveals how one group of visual artists responded to the horrors of war and challenges of global politics. Um, and, you know, I think we're really looking to explore some of the themes uh, that, are, that are so beautifully articulated in this exhibition, um, including propaganda, satire, political comedy, um, and the evolution of mass media. So I'll turn it over to Wyndham to introduce our guest. This is really a thrill for me because I get to introduce two of my favorite people on Earth, Evie Day and Josh Lieb. Um, Evie Day is a New York-based artist whose work ex uh, explores themes of sexuality and humor while employing gravity-defying suspension techniques. By, by manipulating iconic imagery from popular culture, she reanimates the recognizable into new forms that illuminate contradictions in gender roles and stretch the confines of social stereotypes. Evie was recently awarded the prestigious Rome Prize for the Visual Arts by the American Academy in Rome. Her installations include Bombshell with the exploding Marilyn Monroe dress she suspended in the lobby of the Whitney for its 2000 biennial, G-Force, a phalanx of hundreds of pairs of thong underwear flying in formation through the Philip Morris building, and Bride Fight, a suspension of dueling bridal gowns installed in the Lever House during wedding season 2006. In 2010, she exhibited Divas Ascending, a 14-sculpture installation at Lincoln Center created from New York City opera costumes. Evie's work is in the permanent collection of the Whitney Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, the Brooklyn Museum, the National Museum of Women in the Arts, New York Public Library, the Saatchi Collection, Lever House, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, and numerous private collections. So... You can pretty much see her stuff everywhere. <laughs> uh, she's a rock star. Josh Lieb is a native of South Carolina who has spent his professional life in New York and Los Angeles. He's worked as a writer and producer at TV shows that include The Simpsons, News Radio, Silicon Valley, and The Tonight Show. He won seven Emmys as executive producer of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. His work has appeared in The New York Times and The New Yorker, and he's the best-selling author of two novels for younger readers, including... I am a genius of unspeakable evil, and I want to be your class president. He is a genius of unspeakable evil. He is also a rock star. So. Anyway, jumping off here, uh, getting the discussion rolling. Um, propaganda for good and evil is the utilization of images and messaging to sway opinion. Pretty simple. I've been through the World War I and the visual arts exhibit several times, and Destroy This Mad Brute by Harry Hopps from the exhibit always strikes me as the perfect piece of propaganda. In fact, if you look at Wikipedia, which I actually did more than look at Wikipedia for this, but um, <laughs> if you look at Wikipedia, it's the first image that shows up under propaganda. Um, it depicts a giant ape in a Kaiser's helmet storming the American shores with a very distressed damsel in one bloody hand and a club labeled culture with a K in the other. Subtlety is in short supply. But with one image, Hobbes tells us the Germans are bloodthirsty savages. If you don't enlist, they will lay waste to Europe and you're next. They will take your women and destroy your values you hold dear. It's a call to action. Here's how you can make a difference, basically. 
And of course, this all works because everybody loves a monkey. So anyway, Jeremy's going to kick it off with the first question. Yeah, we'll turn it over <coughs> to Evie and Josh. And with Evie's sculptures and installation work and Josh, Josh's political comedy writing, both have impacted mass audience and both, uh, sorry, mass audience illustrating irrationality of certain social conventions, events, and status quo. So the first question I really wanted to kick over to you, Evie, and is that do you ever see your work as propaganda? Hmm, I didn't know it was going to be phrased quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, uh, I wouldn't say it, uh, wow, that's, that's tricky. Um, certainly, I'm taking conventions that are recognizable in popular culture, often about the conventions of, of what is known, the construct of femininity, and then changing its context by transforming it in such a way that you can still recognize it, but you can see that it is turning into something else. So there's this progressive change. So in a way, it's like a progressive outgrowing of those limitations that are seen as um, just limitations of being a female. Um, so I don't know if I'm trying to recruit, but I am trying to make an awareness of how a dress is just a dress. You know, it's really, so there is something inside that. There's energy, there's an independent spirit there that is changing, and I'm just marking that it is changing um, with, this, with an awareness, so in that so we threw a curveball at you with the first question. We supplied, of course, a list of questions and then asked something completely different um, that, we, that we wrote, you know, uh, more recently. Um, but I, I think, not here. Yeah, just an awesome answer. Why not? Um, so, you know, I, I think all propaganda uh, is sort of definitionally leading. Um, you know, it's designed to, to influence people. Um, and I, I guess often it's somewhat misleading. Um, and I, I think that these two things are... are too frequently perhaps conflated, and it's misleading in the sense that, you know, it's, it's the manipulation of data or information um, to misrepresent, to, to try and achieve a certain outcome. Um, and so I actually, I, I'll kick this question to, to you, Josh. I mean, is propaganda inherently bad because it may mislead? And as a sort of a follow-up or part of that, um, you know, can there be a greater good that uses misinformation to achieve its cause? That's deep, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think there's nothing inherently wrong with propaganda. I think, you know, all forms of uh, entertainment or uh, conversation even are, 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 you know, small p propaganda. We're all trying to persuade people by what we say. And when you look at, you know, the stuff around here, they're not, it, it's not so much that, that you're misleading people, but you're simplifying things. You're making, you know, Germany into a King Kong with a Kaiser helmet rather than, Showing sort of the, the deep geopolitical roots of the war, yeah, which you know I, I went to an American school, so I don't know anything about it. But uh, you know, so I, I I don't think there's anything inherently. I, I I think yes, I think propaganda can be used to good purpose. Obviously, there's there's two kinds. You know, the people at home or whoever can't see this in, in on their treadmills right now listening, but there's like very pro you know war stuff here, and then there's this really brutal you know. Uh, prints and etchings of, of just showing the, the horrors of war. Um, I, I, you know, I guess it can be used for a good cause. So propaganda is good, and uh, war is good, and darkness is light. <laughs> and we have always been at war with Oceania, so... Uh, Follow me into the abyss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a funny thing just about um, how the propaganda of 
of World War One work, there are all these artists in particular that were really excited to, I don't know if you're going there, but just how it's misleading and how one can get excited and it's going to be great, and then it turns in not so good. Well, mine's changed, too. I mean, you, you have, you know, you, you had people starting at the beginning of the war, you know, advocating for certain policies and, and advocating a certain thing, being fair, you know, relatively ignorant of what modern war is. Um, so there's, you know, there's this sort of arc throughout this exhibit where, you know, people, uh, you know, people are very effusive at the beginning. And, and again, you know, I mean, if you read the history of World War One. This was, uh, I mean, commonly referred to as the war to end all wars, but it was also a war that they thought, you know, I mean, I think famously that they'd be home before the leaves changed, right? And they were. Um, no, that's uh, not <laughs> the case. Um, Fake news. Yeah, uh, and and certainly, you know, you, no lessons were learned either because it happened again twenty years later. Um, I mean, I, I think. I, I wanted to ask about sort of some of the tactics in, involved here, though, because, I mean, a common tactic in propaganda, it seems, is, is exaggeration. And I think this kind of applies in different ways to um, both, of, both of your work. Uh, and I believe it was Wyndham Lewis who once said, uh, the art of advertisement after the American manner has introduced in all our lives such a lavish use of the superlative that no standard of value is intact. I so, totally forget saying that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Wyndham, I'd start with, uh, what did the American ad industry do to you? Um, no, uh, I, I think, but for... Uh, 1877 cars for kids. <laughs> <laughs> Never forgive them, yeah. Um, so, well, Evie, I mean, let's start. Do, do you agree with that statement? Do you think that there's, like, a, a particularly um, lavish American art form uh, and, and that that's somehow... Um, wiped out our, our standards of, of value and the sort of metrics that we would use? I mean, is it, is it so exaggerated at this point? <laughs> also, not on the script. <laughs> this is a really rough bait and switch. <laughs> so, Josh, that question. I, I, I wasn't really listening, I'll be honest. <laughs> you, you knew that because you got the first question, I you guess, weren't going to get the second Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Wyndham, you said it, so... What's that? You, you, it's your quote. No, yeah, no. It's actually, it's, uh, it's, it's the other one. That's why neither of them listened. I, I, I will say that they won't talk about this. That the, the other Wyndham Lewis is my favorite intellectual anti-Semite genius, and he wrote a book called The Jews, the Jews Are They Human? And, uh, and, and the answer was yes, so that's good. And, and, and he, did, he did change his mind. He, he was a good guy. He's a fantastic artist, and everyone should look up the real Wyndham Lewis and, and not, well, not this one. So I'll pick up. Oh, we'll change, I'll sort of uh, jump on that question. I mean, I think, so somebody who writes something so controversial um, and yet the rest of their body of work maybe reflects something uh, completely different. So you have a, a you know, a, a singular piece that, that maybe, you know, isn't, isn't putting your best foot forward. It, it might be um, uh, pretty damning, in fact. Um, you know, can you separate a, an individual piece of art from the artist who made it and sort of from their, their larger corpus? Are we talking about in World War One? <laughs> Whenever, yeah. I mean, in World War One now. I mean, it, it seems, like, uh, yeah. In, in your case, would you ever be comfortable being held to account, like being held to, to one piece of art that you've made? Oh no, I think that pe artists often feel pigeonholed, and especially today with the sort of pluralism of art forms that, um, and this idea of not a dominant style that you know, 
it can be difficult to recognize who the author is. Sometimes that's the strategy of the artist, also to not have one style or to be recognized or to have an alias, um, to perhaps distance themselves from what it is that they're doing or pretend that they're somebody else, um, um, to dodge the statement. So do you think the idea of like anonymity or using a pseudonym in that case would be to sort of so that the art is considered independent of like any of the like attachment or strings or you know? Well, I've, there's sort of there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek examples and say Duchamp who is Rose Selvie and he's wearing dresses and and trying out kind of drag and so he changes his name for that almost as a joke so that no one would recognize it as him like he has to have a different name if he's wearing a dress. Um, so playing multiple characters. Yeah, but I think also there's things that are a little bit more devious than that. Um, like? Like, I know, I'm thinking, trying to give a good example. I'll think about it. He's like, who do I want to say? Who do I want to reveal? Secret safe with us. <laughs> we'll never tell anybody. Although we are recording it. Um, yeah, I mean, so, well, the other, so propaganda is also always changing, right? I mean, like, the content changes with the times. Um, uh, and adapts to, to new subject matter. So in World War One, it was one set of issues, but obviously we deal with a very different political environment today. Um, you know, and I think more than ever, the delivery mechanism itself is actually changing. So, um, Josh, I mean, I'll, I'll put to you, sort of, what do you make of the way that technology allows for like super highly targeted messaging and propaganda these days? Uh, I mean, well, that's two different things. One is, uh, one is, I guess, what you're asking. One is what I'm thinking, which is the the, the highly targeted nature is like, yeah, this stuff can. You can direct whatever your message is, sort of uh, highly tuned to the audience you want. Uh, the thing that really terrifies me about uh, the way that technology is changing propaganda is, it, and this is in very soon, if not today, basically, um, you know, when right here we have posters where to get people into war, they have, they have to depict the enemy as a, as a monkey. There are computers now that can make your enemy into real monkeys, and and you know, photorealistic and. And they can make any politician say anything you would ever want them to say. Uh, you're no longer going to be able to believe anything you see or hear. There's no seeing as believing at all. And so you're going to be, you know, people will make picture perfect propaganda uh, that proves, you know, genocides or disproves them. Or and uh, it's almost going to be living in a world of uh, without information. Uh, Evie, do you agree? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> it's terrifying. It's really, it's. It's really terrifying. It's very, um, it's just disorienting, all of it. Um, because where, where do you, because um, when you're creating an opinion as an artist, a writer, you're usually in counter to something else, like to make your point. And when you're not sure, is that legit? Do I really want to critique that statement? Or, oh, it's not even, is it real? Did it happen today? Right, right. Well, um, the target's moving. The moving target. And where is the target? It seems to dissolve almost, and then there's another one. And I, I have that as like a recurring stress dream, you know, <laughs> where, you, where you're trying to grab something and you just can't get hold of it, and that feels like uh, my grasp on, on the news at the moment. It's just, uh, it's an ever sort of disappearing, um, you know, sort of evaporating target, but, but you know, something, a goal that you just can't put your fingers around anymore. I mean, you, I mean, you... John, we have the advantage of having Josh, who actually did uh, fake news for, for <laughs> seven, seven years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it wasn't fake news. It was just comedic news. But, you know, we, we always aimed to tell the truth, you know. And, 
you know, but but yeah, but the, look, so much of what John Stewart does and what it, it did, and what you know Trevor Noah does now, and and, and so many of the, the people in that family of, of entertainers are showing. Can you believe the president said this? And you show you know the shot, the video clip, and then you know you comment on that. Well, how do you do that when you can make the president say anything you want him to say, uh, or unfortunately not, you know, as the case may be. But, uh, but you know, it, 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 you can't trust anyone. It used to always be about context, and you have to trust the people who deliver this stuff to you. You can't trust anyone. There's, uh, uh, I, I have children, so I, w I want to be optimistic, but I, I don't know what that is. I feel like it's accelerating, yes. really. I mean, we all do as we get deeper into trying to figure it out. It almost becomes a tangle. It's, it's hard to imagine a threshold where people would, I mean, where people will disengage as well. Um, I mean, it seems like it's pretty one-directional in that sense. I don't see any direction. No. And I think people will disengage. I think, I think, I think you already see it now with, you know, as, you know, Wyndham, you're joking, fake news, but people say, well, that's not real. And if, if, if a fact comes up that contradicts what they want to believe about the world, they'll go, well, that's not true, that's not real. And you can, as the evidence gets easier and easier to fake, that's going to be more and more true. Well, does that, how does that figure into, I mean, in both of your... Uh, pursuits of creating art, um, it is. How does that? Um, does the fact that the that what is actually happening is is more absurd than what you can make up at any time? Or in Evie's case, it's you know the um, the direction things are going are more exaggerated than you can exaggerate in a sort of uh, uh, physical. A statement is how how difficult is that is that making your lives difficult? I'm not going to. There's a real upside too to having the proliferation of information and access to it, right? And um, it's opening doors globally for people to communicate and for so many artists to to speak and have a voice and for all kinds of politics to be shared. But again, to understand where's the root of that at this point is difficult and a defining style and, and is it is it cynical or not you know right. is it tongue in cheek is it not and the journalists in, in terms of news they it is news even though what this politician said is doesn't make any sense but the news is they have to repeat it to tell the news because it is news but <laughs> <laughs> it may not be real but that's what the president yeah, said you have to you have to say, you have to say it yeah it is news uh, i i was thinking that it was hard to um you know, it, it, it makes it impossible to be satirical with, with you know, when, when the, the reality is so much more funny or terrifying than anything you could say, and it's real, so it beats you. Uh, every, yeah, it's every, already every, there. Yeah, yeah, like it beats you every time. But then I, then I you know, I think, I do think, like, like well, Hitler could be satirized and, and as sort of the, the extreme example used in every argument. And, um, like, I don't really like the great dictator, uh, but... Like the Three Stooges did these really funny things where Mo turned into Hitler. Did you ever see those? I saw the Charlie Chaplin one. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're, they're funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, it can be done. That beautiful speech. I mean, the end where he's sort of saying everything that's democracy. And, oh. But it's like a. Anyway, sorry. I don't even. Rem I don't even remember the beautiful part. I just remember the funny stuff. It's the end. It's the end. <laughs> okay. Anyway. But yeah, I mean, how do you? You know, I, I don't know. How you know? With, with I guess it's you know. How do you out? maneuver something that's just so insane and uh well we can we can move think, on do you think like the appetite is changing for it as well i mean that there's a different appetite in the unit like in america for satire and, and comedy um 
about politics right now? I, you know, I'm watching Colbert and Trevor Noah, and that's entertainment that's just like a way to kind of hold catharsis, on. Yeah. And yes, it's catharsis, but that is sort you know, I, I read that as much as I read the Times or the week or try to gather information. So the fact that the comedians are the ones that are delivering the news to me, and I consider myself to be looking for the truth, um, is, is the, the state of affairs is strange. The, the, the downside, you know, in working in television is, is the fracturing of the audience, where, you know, so much, you know, all the work I did at The Daily Show, basically, was... was it was for people who thought like I did, you know, and and okay. uh, and if you didn't agree with, you know, I didn't agree with John Stewart on everything, but I always thought he was sincere, and I think the audience agreed too. But people, you know, the Venn diagrams were fairly close, and if you really didn't like John Stewart or what he thought of the, you just didn't watch him, uh, you know, and and so and I think there are outlets for those people, and and you know, it used to be that because there were only three channels and PBS that right. no one watched, like. Right. You, every, everybody kind of had the same touchstones, and, and, and now we don't. We don't. Like a Josh, actually, quick yeah. question. In your writing, then, how important was it, especially when you're writing for a show like The Daily Show, how important was it for you to get all sides of the story, to maybe tune into conservative radio or, or left-wing radio? I, I, I mean, I, I like to listen to... I, I wasn't kidding when I said Wyndham Lewis is my favorite intellectual anti-Semite. Okay. Like, I really do like... Thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, Christian Lewis is my least favorite. So. Uh, but uh, but they, uh, you know, but I really do like. I, I read a lot of right wing guys and and, and left wing guys. I, I like any extremists are very interesting, you know, and and how their thought processes go because we all do the same thing uh, in our the way we think. Um, I I didn't try to be. We did try to be fair on The Daily Show, but I wasn't trying to be uh, uh, equal-sided either. We, there was, it, was, it was like a legal show. We, were, we were, had an argument that we, we were following, and whatever, way, whatever take John sort of wanted to have, we would sort of try to bolster that. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I do try to keep it, but, it, it, but other shows, I think, are where you try to keep the, the larger Big Tent uh, thing. Is there something inherently... Sort of, I'm just I'm, I'm thinking about like the fact that um, you know there there is something sort of open about the fact that it, you know it's comedy right I mean it's intended to be comedy um, and at least that sort of wears on its sleeve um, it, you know it's it's uh, it's character as opposed to cable news which is as you know it, it sort of attempts to be or, or says that it's it's factual but I mean doesn't necessarily have more bearing in reality. Right, I, I you know they, they you know they, they, those poor guys they take it on the chin. Everybody's trying their best. I don't think anybody's really there aren't really any nefarious workers out there. I think even the people you would think are nefarious are in their hearts think they're doing you know God's work. Um, so I, you know I don't know, I don't know we're all we're all struggling bastards and there's there's no hope I guess at <laughs> <laughs> the end. Just curiosity keeps me going. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an interesting question though for you, Evie. Then is is Creativity, creativity and inspiration more difficult in times of crisis? I mean, other than the, the sort of anxiety that, that, that sort of pervades your daily life at this point. Well, but I mean, it, does it make you react? Does it make you, does it make your work, does it make you more fertile? For more fertile? Um, well, <laughs> there's so many new chemistries that we can play with. But um, thinking about 
yeah, if you don't just freeze in the moment of, I cannot even imagine how to like re sort of look at yourself and your interests, and then or it's kind of a call to arms where artists are getting together and sort of discussing how do we make an effect? Can we change this? What is um, so there's a difference that way, and then there are, you know, any kind of social crisis it, it creates friction and it creates a kind of anxiety that catapults to perhaps um, some kind of motivation to do something. So there's a lot of ingenuity that obviously comes out of war, difficult experiences, well, yeah, invention. I mean, but what we were talking about earlier is that you know World War One launched a lot of collectives. You know, a lot of people uh, getting together. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what you, you know, what reflected back, you know, here that you could see replicating itself currently. I mean, the, the sort of, I mean, even Blast by Josh's favorite, Wyndham Lewis, um, you know, was a, was a collect, was an artist collective putting together um, uh, sort of a singular political vision in poetry, um, you know, short form writing, art, all sorts of things. So do you see, given the tenor of, of current, you know, what's going on currently, well, take us back to World War One, and then also tell us if you think that the current uh, climate is going to sort of give birth to sort of collectives again. Um, I think in the art world there are collectives that, that um, have different opinions, like academically, so um, how people are approaching the world in their commentary or not. Um, maybe more formal concerns with their artwork, but I think right now people are really looking to history, and I think this is a really timely show, and also the Whitney has right now a show up that is an incomplete history of protests since 1940, sort of picks up after here of their collection <coughs> of artworks. So it, it's, I think, a time to visit that and to see if there's strategies in there that make sense that can be built upon, and I have seen it's an interesting show there, too, what ours were doing in... in um, Feel free to go to the Whitney after January 7th. <laughs> yeah. After, Viet, you know, they're responding to Vietnam, and, it, it's, you know, and it's a different time, too. But um, but that seems like the last time that the, the country, and, and, you know, I mean, I may be overlooking some, some sort of major uh, chunks of, of crisis, but that seems like the last time that this country was as divided as it is. And, and I mean, I think you can talk about it from an artistic perspective. You can talk about it. Uh, in terms of how, um, you know, the sort of satirical and humorous uh, got together uh, in, around, you know, protesting and a very common, um, you know, aim and goal. Uh, I don't know, both of you, are, I'd love to have both of your opinion from both of your fields. I think one thing, though, that there is one common um, point that I think most artists can agree with and, and are using in the work a lot is about the environment. So that's not even so political. Yes, it can be political, no. but they can see it happening, and then that affects everybody. And I think there's people, artists are... So it's more humanist. They, well, that's what's affecting everyone. But again, it's you know it's a moving target. The platform is moving. We're on an ice shelf. The ice and, shelves are moving. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're swaying. And I think a lot of work is, is showing that, too, is, is fantastic. Um, videos by Ryan Tricart, and he's been doing it for several years, and it just looks like what today looks like if you ever got a chance to see Ryan Tricart videos. They're, they're totally disorienting and crazy, and at first they're really harsh. You don't want to look, and then you're like, oh my God, this is kind of what my life looks like on the television. Or It's very... Anyway, 
I mean, did you find? I mean, do you do you see a, a similar movement in comedy or, or satire from back in the day? I mean, is was the lamp, I mean, the Lampoon predates that obviously by a lot, but National Lampoon almost grew out of that era. It, I mean, the National Lampoon did, but you know, National Lampoon was really. I, I love it. It was performative for me, but in some ways, it's you know, very reactionary uh, magazine. It was not like. It was not the Abby Hoffman, or it wasn't the realist no, or anything at all. You know, in some ways, it was sort of the the revenge of the um, the Dartmouth frat guys going. You know, yeah. this doesn't rep- this shit doesn't represent me. You know, like I just want to get high and chase people, and and I, di- I didn't say girls. I held back. But that's who they people. wanted to chase. Was <laughs> but girls are people too, right? So, uh, so um, but you know, I, but you're you're I, I hadn't thought of it, but yeah, like in, in Vietnam, like obviously the the art world and the uh, world of comedy and satire did come out very strongly, you know, and I think had a, had a big influence in a way. I don't think they, I'll, I don't think they can have it now. I, I don't think, people often ask me, you know, where's comedy going with the way things are, and I, I really can't tell. I thought it was going more, well, people are going to want more escapist, and no, they don't. I thought, well, people want more, you know, hard-hitting satire, but, you know, how do you do that when sort of the, the, the news is non-satirizable, where, where, where the, the take is so obvious. You know, if someone says, dog poop tastes good, you don't need Jon Stewart to go, that's crazy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and everyone knows that's crazy. So I, I, I really don't know where it's going. Evie, where's art going? Little, what, what are we going to do? <laughs> that's what I was saying. I think it, so right at the moment, it reflects a jumble, but also it reflects a lot of interesting body politics that's coming out. Um, there is a lot about gender that is blending. So I'm saying there's a lot of positive outcome here. It's confusing, but confusing isn't all bad. What's scary is the political aspects that are going to perhaps control um, uh, civil liberties. But at this moment, there there is wide open doors that have never been opened before in terms of race and gender, um, which is really very exciting. And performance and all the, these different, what do you call art, Tweets, art, you know, you can use so many different materials and forms and everyone has an iPhone and you can make a video, so it's really more plastic, it's really... Democratized. Somewhat, it's it's really exciting, but yes, who's your audience? Like, how many people you have on Instagram, you know, it's, uh, but I mean, it's, it's happening, and so there is part of it that's wildly celebratory, I think, it just makes me cry, I'm so happy that, um, there's evolving work. There's a great show at the New Museum, too, called Trigger. Um, uh, so I, I'm, that's very grounding in a sense, but it is all about the fracturing and opening that is, I would say, nonviolent, or discussing previous kinds of violence that was not able to have a platform before. Um, but... You're right. All these platforms are good. It is easier to get your stuff out there, and I, you know, I mentioned there were like all there were only three networks before. Now anyone can have make a show. anything. Right. You and, can have your own YouTube show. Yeah, exactly. With very high production values, and you know, and really, and get your message out there. Which, and that is, you're right, fantastic, and I should appreciate that more. Yeah. We're but attempting it, to propagandize here. So, question about, I mean, satire. I think for. In a way, I guess, satire can be seen as sort of taking things out of their, you know, quote-unquote, normal context and representing them in a different way. Um, and uh, I, I think, Evie, you know, y- you do this certainly with, with your images and, and with your art um, and sort of present, uh, like, 
you know, a new perspective on, on something that you might see, you know, every single day, such as a flying formation of, of thongs. Um, or, you know, and, and similarly, taking a, a, something that's been completely normalized, a political statement or something like that, and, and presenting it in a different light, um, you know, can, can have the exact same effect. Uh, so, I mean, I mean, I sort of wondered if you would discuss the similarities or differences as you see it between the visual art world and, and writing um, in, in the, you know, in the context of satire. Well, I don't think... Humor is definitely part of my work. It's essential, and it is like the, uh, the escape valve. Um, it's also um, sort of a way to be optimistic. And um, I think that um, just the, the basic... When you recontextualize something familiar, it, it becomes in contrast to what you're looking at. Um, such as a thong that you're seeing every day in the springtime around the hips of a girl or a boy. And it looks like it's flying right into the crotch. So if what if it flew out? <laughs> and so you can stretch it into and turn it into something that seems to have its own GPS. So something that's sort of a throwaway you know, we can say fishnet stockings are just some kind of tacky trick of lure. Truly, a Laura's fishnets come from true fishnets um, originally. That is also there to um, manipulate or um, enhance the shape of, of the leg or the arm. And so, by using and and so that I think it's important. I think it's an important lure, and to understand how it works, like a wireframe computer model for architecture. Um, and with this, <laughs> um, taking it out of context, um, to think about, well, that, that thong is actually, it's, it's sort of enhancing what a woman is not supposed to be hiding, but putting it forward. But at the same time, it's hidden, but then you take it for yourself, like as opposed to like, look at this, and then <laughs> you take it out. It's like you can't have that. Um, there's something. I mean, it's a little bit a twisted <laughs> uh, concept, but uh, no, I think um, I mean, that's... context and and yeah. So if you have flying thongs in the context of a very conservative corporate headquarters, as those were, that is interesting. Where the work can look like these flying fleets of what look like jet fighters in military formation or um, uh, bird flight patterns that are colorful and bright and they're all moving in the same direction and um, sort of choreographed like Busby Berkeley. And then you, and they look like birds and it's very pleasant. But if you look further and it's like, oh, wow, is that what I think it is? Um, maybe that there's a way that you, your thoughts can go further with thinking about that. So there's humor clearly there. There's a kind of strategy there. Um, is there propaganda there? I'm not so sure, but maybe. Um, but Does, I think the, so for the context, you know, for me, site-specific, that kind of site-specific work is important. Does humor pave? I mean, does humor is humor the spoonful of sugar that you know that that allows this message to be told, or do you feel like the message uh, and is you know, do you feel like humor is intrinsic in the message? You know, I, I think 
there's also, there could be mixed messages with work like that, and some people could take it as thinking that it's very severe or that it's just a formal kind of uh, conceit and not really even see it being funny. Believe it or not. I thought it was funny. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm uh, glad. But um, one, <laughs> I just want to talk about the dazzle camouflage. Please. <laughs> I think you can both, actually, this is good. Wait, what's, the, what's the dazzle camouflage? Well, I know what it is. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it actually in terms of, of the tweets from the White House. Because as camouflage is usually to cloak something, so it blends into its environment and, and the the dazzle camouflage in this case, which was used in World War I, the bold black and white stripes that were painted over ships, um, they're arranged in such a way that um, optically the angles interfere with the silhouette of the ship and the horizon line. So when the U-boats, the German U-boats, are looking through their periscope, it, it was very difficult to tell which direction they were going. So it wasn't really camouflaging them. You know the boat's there, but you can't tell which direction it's going. And I think there's something in there that connects with this throwing out a lot of decoys and fake news. And um, but yeah, that's brilliant. That's a good metaphor for something. For something. Yeah. For everything. I think uh, right now. Right now. <laughs> like you can podcast, see it's there. Yeah. It's there. Yeah. But which direction is it going? Sort of the hidden in plain sight, like just. Creates so much volume of. I like that it's information and the 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 torpedoes to to get them to to hit your target have to be um, thinking in advance of where where the, traje- the trajectory yeah. you know so it's a lead so they really want to know how many battle half is going it's going to go east right and so well, we're going to hit it we're going to hit it um, so that's why there's anticipation of where the move is. It, it's a tonnage thing, right? I, I was thinking about, you know, back in the '80s. Remember when uh, when Reagan made that joke? We're going to start bombing Russia in three minutes. You know, he's, you know, he said, I've, I've, "I've found out a way to have world peace. The, the bombing starts in two minutes." And and the whole everyone, you know, it was a big scandal, and everybody was all up in arms and blah blah. And now we have stuff like that, you know, five or six times a day. And I'll be honest, I don't know, and and, and nobody makes a big deal. And I will say, actually, that's kind. Of, I don't mind that part of it. I don't mind the part where people don't get upset about Ronald Reagan saying some dumbass joke, you know, because, you know, the in Russians... The yeah, the exact... Well, the Russians knew he wasn't going to bomb them. Everybody knew it was... You know, I think everybody got all upset about it. And I, it, it, I, We have to make the, the defining line between uh, what are the stupid jokes... People, I don't know, I'm, I'm saying this like what, really what? frightens some people. Yeah. <laughs> They're not thinking between the lines like you are. But, but <laughs> did, did, did they really think they were going to... Uh, maybe, but what is that, what is outrage worthy at this point? I mean, that's right. Be a no, big a good point. Piece of comedy. I mean, I think it, it, it it's an interesting moment where um, people are becoming far more guarded and careful, or, and ma- being made to be much more careful about what they say. At the same time, that you know, sort of the gloves are off in every possible way. So those things are are really contradictory messages. Um, you know, you can't make fun of this and this and this. And yet, at the same time, you know the the uh, you know the sort of the absurd blather that's going on is is uh, um, you know the, there there are people getting away with it. It's, it seems like an unfair playing field at some. And does it favor people who are going all or nothing? I mean, I I always come back to for those familiar with South Park, like 
Those guys get away with everything, and I have absolutely no idea how they do it, other than the fact that they they established very early that they weren't that nothing was off limits. Right. So is it is it all or nothing? Do you think, in that respect? In that respect, maybe. Uh, I, I I think um, I think if you don't care, if you really don't care, then obviously you can do whatever you want, and and I think the people who are probably uh, sort of you know most crushed by in in you know with these very exciting tumultuous times where people are really rethinking attitudes that it's not just that they've held for decades, but maybe that, you know, society's held for millennia, um, is, are the people who are, are probably have the best uh, best things at heart, where they're like, they, they want to be a, a good person, and they have some deeply held, really stupid idea, and they, and they end up getting crushed on it. Whereas if you are nothing but a bundle of stupid ideas... What do you care? You know, you're you're, you're there, there. There's no getting crushed. Now, not that South Park is stupid, because I love South Park, but I haven't watched it in 15 years. But I think it's funny. But uh, I don't know. Uh, that's a, that's a great answer. Thank you. Goodbye. But, but, I, <laughs> but I did I, I did hear an interview at one point with uh, Robert Smigel, uh, a contemporary of yours, um, who said that you know when a, now in the in the current climate when a word becomes off limits. And this would seem very sensible, and but it took a lot of thought. As um, you know, you move on and you figure out what what you can make funny that is still within the limits of of acceptability. I mean, do you feel obviously you've been in this business for tw- more than twenty years? Uh, you know, and, and then you know further back, even going back to the your lampoon days and things. Um, you know, you've there are there's ground that's been lost for. Generally, you know, most people would say for better, um, certainly makes things more difficult. But it, there's ground that you've lost, uh, or or certain uh, elements that are that have become off limits that didn't used to be. How do you sort of, um, I don't know, how do you work I, through I, that? I might be an outlier. Like I see, I'm a free speech absolutist, and I don't know, you know, I, I it really drives me crazy these Holocaust denial laws in Europe and. I think you should be able to say anything. I think any, whatever hateful idea you have, you need to be able to express it. Uh, um, I don't have any guarantee that that's a real protection for democracy or not, but you know, I think it beats the alternative. And as a writer, I, I don't understand any writer or artist who is in favor of limiting speech. I really don't, and, and, uh, I, but I do see it. I don't know if you run into it, Evie, but I, I, I run into it in writers' rooms where, where there's a real feeling of like, Mm-mm, can't say that, uh, you know, and, and the people who should say you can't say that should be the bureaucrats and not the other Artists. writers in the room. But uh, I, but I, I've, I've definitely noticed a real chilling effect over, you know, 25 years of doing this. Um, and that's worrisome to me. I'm not look, I, we're not this isn't the end of history. It's, it's going to keep on going and until our bones are dust. So you can only go forward. Yeah. And I mean, I would say like the controversy with um this memorials in the South, et cetera, things related to the Confederacy, and that that is a really interesting argument that's coming up fi- kind of finally in a way, um, where people, I think it is about technology, everyone has a lot more information now, mm-hmm. and they really understand what was happening and what Robert E. Lee stood for, et cetera, and I don't necessarily think they should be taken down, I think they should be recontextualized, mm-hmm. what happened, you know, what happening. Yeah, it, yeah, that's, it's, it's ter- you know, I, 
Just, you can't pretend it wasn't there. No, no, no. And that, that's, that's, yeah. that would be the very worst thing you could do. Because who's deciding that? Yeah. Well, that, that's also the problem. It's like, like well, what's, where's the line? Who, revisionist. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. art death panels. I think there is. Yeah. Just cut a chapter out of the history book and uh, pretend it didn't happen. I mean, there are plenty of places that do. I mean, that there, there are actually countries that, that do that. And I mean, I, yeah. that I'm, but public object, like signifier in a town, a physical thing. Um, yeah, books. I mean, who's the editor? I mean, that's. Just, I think yes. that's always. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I always used to wonder that about the anarchist newsletter in Harvard Square. <laughs> so, so you the cops. Who edits this thing? Yeah. Uh, it's Wikipedia. Yeah. No, but I, I, you know, I, I do, you know, I, I, I do think it's an interesting. I mean, it, it depends. Like, there are a lot of people who would call, um, you know, the the sort of uh, um, the shaming that that goes with, um, you know, some of the things that are off limits as progress. I mean, that's part of what people work toward getting, you know, uh, getting to a point where. Uh, these things are no longer acceptable, but if you keep marching through, it's it's just a, a another form of of um, you know. Uh, There's just prohibition. the added challenge that like people also have a right to be offended by stuff, um, and you know they they are entitled to 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 present that view and to say you know and shame on you, um, like that's a valid. I mean that's an equally valid opinion on on the other side, right? The blast. Yeah, you could yeah. subscribe to that magazine, and um, you could hear incendiary political views and satire. Ten issues for four dollars. <laughs> digital only. Read graphic design. Yeah. I, really, I would really like to read the blast, actually, just from looking at the uh, the, the issue here. You should. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I will. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, one other question that, you know, I guess the, um, you know, we, we were talking about, uh, you know, Josh's uh, listening, and this is anecdotal because I used to get into his car every once in a while and, and he would be like, sorry about that, and, and turn down the, the uh, right wing uh, radio station that he was listening <laughs> to. Yeah. And uh, sorry about that. Um, and, uh, you know, with the, the, with the number of uh, with the the work that you're seeing in in the three rooms of this particular exhibition, um, a lot of it is made by people who volunteered to fight or serve in the war. And I'd like to get from both of you, and, and I'll start with uh, Evie. But what um, when you're addressing a subject, and you frequently are addressing, you know large-scale, you know, uh, social issues, how important is immersion versus um, perspective, so to speak? Immersion in the the conflict? Into whatever the conflict is, however it is that you might immerse yourself in that conflict. Obviously, war is a a fairly cut-and-dried version. Right, I'm looking around, and it's like, we are not experiencing this, but we might in case of what may happen because of contemporary politics, um, which is really very frightening. Um, but how important is it to be immersed or well, just I mean, be even, from even a take distance? example, you know, taking, for example, Josh's, um, you know, desire to listen to people who he disagrees with. Sure, I mean, how, yeah. how important is it to do that in, instead of just looking at it and being outraged by it and ignoring it? Because you think it's poisonous. Yeah. 
Well, I, I have Fox News on my um, <laughs> my phone, and Ted's just allergic to it. He's like, get it off, get it off, get it off. You know, like, just don't even go there. But I want to know what the opposition or, you know, what people are saying, because a lot of people are believing that, right. my family included. I want to know what it is that they believe in. And so I'm looking at that, and it's a very large demographic. Um, and it's why, um, I mean, if you're... Um, feminist politics going to other countries where there are no rights for women um, you can immerse in that and know a lot more and when you come back to a place where you're allowed to show a leg um, what you can do or it can be act, I mean that's activism mm-hmm. I mean I guess I, I'm just saying well, what, how do you take it out of the purely academic context and, and you know and, and then I'm using uh, this as an extreme example because these are people who you know, without the knowledge of what modern industrial war looked like, sauntered in, and as Jen Farrell told us uh, when she took us through the exhibit, um, you know, this this is these are armies that didn't have helmets for the first two years of the war. I mean, these were not people who went into battle with a great deal of understanding of what they were in for. Um, you know, to what degree do you you know do you immerse yourself? And and I you know I flip that to Josh as well. Um, if I can just. I'll read one quote that we, I mean, Otto Dix um, said, uh, I have to experience all the ghastly bottomless depths of life for myself. It's for that reason that I went to war and for that reason that I volunteered. So, you know, can you really know something without actually going through it, I guess, is that? I, I mean, as a writer, as an artist, I think we, we tend to justify a lot of our bad behavior as, oh, I got to do that for the experience, you know. But, so yeah, like if you look at Otto Dix, too, um, uh, for instance, or Kathy Colwitz, I think that um, they were already mature artists by the time that the war is starting in 1914, and then um, they their subject matter, like Otto Dix, was always pretty grim. So it's you know it sort of just segued kind of very nicely. There may have been a lot of artists that were doing innovative things that just had the paralysis. He was a, and he was a method could, artist, and too. or were killed, or you know, because at the beginning it was very optimistic. Um, noble pursuit to, with with all the ideas that were going on. Why to go to war, the, the pro thing and and modernism and machine age and um, and everyone was fighting for what they thought would be a better world. Well, um, talk and, about this too, because you you had mentioned something uh, before about this. But you know, you said modernism was coming regardless of whether this war happened or not. Was this uh, sort of a, a hitting of the pause button before? This happened, or was it all part of? The, obviously, it's all part of the evolution because it all happened. But what you know, what <coughs> role did it play in, in the development of that kind of? Well, I think it's the industrial revolution, the you know mechanics, the machine age, travel, trains, planes, automobile, kind of. That was, I mean, some of those things are advanced through the war, but um, that that people are able to mechanize their their life differently, and it's like the Italian. Um, the futurists, they wanted to see themselves as sort of out there in the future and not, um, not you know, every, agriculture. Um, and um, to be, it's, just, it's a very futurist idea. Um, and to sort of meld with the machine and just to, to change and, and to disrupt the convention. So I think, I think that the things were boiling with a lot of invention that was happening in, in industry. I think one of the major developments, um, you know, was sort of, uh, and I think, you know, Jervis... Yeah, no, I was going to say, as, you know, as we sit in this room, 
you know, it marked a time, as we can see, and the hugely forward in media in general, but very monocultural media, so very directed. And now we live in this sort of disillusion, dis dissolving monoculture with more media outlets all over. And I wonder sometimes, do you guys feel like it's easier to get messaging out because there is so many ways to get it out and so many ways to target, or is it that much harder now to get a message out where before you could direct the message? And I would, I would push this, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you were going to say something, um, but I was going to ask Josh, as somebody who wrote for a lot of popular television shows um, that used to have audiences that were locked in in appointment viewing, um, and then these things were talked about and were, became a larger part of the culture, how is that, how is the disassembling of this affecting your world? Uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, that's that's the the downside of having all these different platforms is uh, the, the audience gets fractured. That said, there's, you know, a, I think literally a zillion billion people on the world right now. So even when the audience gets fractured into a zillion pieces, that's a, a billion people in each piece, you know, it's it, so... The, there are a lot of people you can get out. No, it, it, it's, it's hard to get stuff. It is hard to get that wide, uh, you, you know, having Walter Cronkite come out against Vietnam. Like, you're not going to get that moment anymore because no, there's nobody who's, you know, the nation's broadcaster anymore. Uh, and there are whole subcultures in this country. I mean, I guess there always were, but, but there's a lot of them now, and I know more about them that I, I know I'll really never know anything about just because there's too many and I'm too stuck working and sending my kids to school and, and, and dealing with my own, you know, dumb little subculture. So um, uh, I, I, I think it's it, it, it profoundly ununifying, and I, I don't know how... Um, I, I, but, you know, then, then the geniuses come along who come up with something that captures everyone's attention. Right. Um, you know, whether it's the song or the visual or the joke... You know, and it might just be a dirty joke that suddenly everybody is telling, but, you know, that was a work of genius that, that caught everyone's attention. And I guess that is still possible. I'm optimistic. <laughs> it's it sort of, it's, it seems like it's almost, it's more competitive rather than having, like, um, you know, whoever the, the dozen film directors were in World War One had a pretty clear audience and everybody was going to watch their, anybody who watched a movie was going to watch their movies. Right. There just weren't that many options. Um, and, you know, at, at this point, it's, it is so much more competitive, um, but I mean, I guess in a way, you could you could argue that that would refine and you know, and, and, I mean, I don't want to say improve the quality because I don't know that it's necessarily. I don't think so. You know, it's funny because we're talking about propaganda, and there's two sides of propaganda. There's the the propagandist, and there's the audience, and the, the audience has to be agreeing with you, or you know, it, 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 it there's a, a loop there, and you know, going back to the idea that the, the limited TV stations, you know, Sunday afternoon used to be deadly. There was just nothing on TV. If he, and and so, you'd watch. I'd watch Hee Haw, and I'd watch Lawrence Welk show. And I didn't really either enjoy either of those shows. <laughs> you know, no idea what I oh, see exactly. But but I you know I, I learned a lot about country music from Hee Haw, and I, I learned a lot about you know champagne pop from Lawrence Welk, and and I, yeah exactly. And Christian like you'll never have. But I was force fed it, and like every every you know kid in my school knew something about. Grandpa Jones from Hee Haw, or, you know, and, and, and now you never will, and so, ha, -ha. Probably on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, yeah, 
Yeah, it's sort of like a unifying thing. Like, oh yeah, I remember hee haw. Yeah, it's such an oddity, and you don't even have to have a political view. Of, Did you like it or you didn't right. like it? It's sort of like that was strange. See, this is already becoming exclusionary. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is exactly what we're talking about. And I like hee haw actually. I've come around. <laughs> I like Lawrence Welk. I, I'll, I'll watch like Lawrence Welk for you know. I'll put it on for my kids because the dancing's cool and the the Lennon sisters. Thing. There's some weird stuff there, but yeah. Was it Minnie Pearl with a hat mm-hmm. like the tag? Oh, yeah, the on name. It, yeah. Like, She's kind funny. of that was that was interesting. I was like flying around like a bug, and yeah. then how much was it? You know that hat. What is hee-haw? So hee-haw, so hee-haw was created in the late '60s to be. It was like the 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 country response to laughing. It was basically it was created to be laughing, which was a, a comedy show for hipsters, and so uh, or not for, for the cool people. And so this was this was the comedy show for the other people. And so it was music and. And just short, uh, corny jokes, broad humor, broad yeah. humor, but 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 enjoying itself. You mm-hmm. know, it was a big party you could go to, and and then uh, it was on CBS, and they got purged from the airwaves when they decided that rural uh, audiences didn't deserve respect. But it hung around in syndication for twenty odd years, so yeah. uh, I don't know. Like today, that would be an offensive show to put on. I guess so. I guess yeah. so. Yeah, or yeah, it would be, be considered stereotypical or whatever. But it, it's you know they, they had some really good music. They had some really bad music too, actually. But you know. Uh, so, did, uh, this, do, do all your podcasts end up talking about hee haw? Pretty much, they all degenerate <laughs> right. into a, a referendum on well, music. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's we're true. back to uh, you know Roy Clark and, and uh, Buck Owens and the Buckaroos. Well, there's no like communal experience though. I mean, like what, just what you guys are talking about. I mean, there there aren't that many shows. There isn't that much music. There isn't that much media in general that that like such a broad swath of people actually share. And I'm always drawn like, what was the um, Casey Kasem? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is the American Top 40. Um, yeah, I've been stuck in a car with you listening to literally that from beginning to end. It's on Sirius every weekend still, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and it's literally a rehash of, of all of that. But, I mean, that that was the radio station that, what, everybody listened to. So all of the kids at school had the same right. knowledge of it. Right. Um, and I think about how, like, insanely balkanized, like, the, the music uh, world is now. And, and there's just, there's no overlap. There's no, um, and I wonder if that's sort of a... A loss, a net loss, or if I mean, I, I think about it, you know, it's a strange um, thing to bring up the week, the one weekend of the year when when everybody is actually going to the same uh, piece of entertainment. I mean, brother, it's brother, brother, the brother, 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 yeah. brother <laughs> event at, at uh, World War One in the visual arts. Um, but um, you know, I mean, Star Wars opened this week, and you know, that's going to be the talk. Yeah. Um, for everybody, we've we've had a conversation about Star Wars already today. N- neither of us having seen it, um, but you know, the, v- increasingly you don't. You know, everybody's watching something different, and they're watching it at different times, and they're experiencing it differently, and they're and it's being um, you know it, the whole idea of streaming and and you know and watching things on your own time at your own pace. Uh, you know, what what do you? Obviously, this is a, a a pivotal moment for for television, which has been your industry for a long time. What what do you see as as uh, I hate to say what do you see coming in the future because who you know who the hell knows? But how do you see that breaking down, and and what do you think that does to um, what I, would formerly be your audience? I mean, I think we all have some idea now, which is that it's the audience has been given a lot more power, and you know, if you want to watch something, you can watch it. You can watch it anytime you want. And if you don't ever want to see something, you never ever have to see it. Um, so, uh, so I, I think that's the, it, it's great. It's it's completely empowering for the audience. They're they're not force fed anybody's uh, opinions, but the the downside is that they can completely pigeonhole themselves, 
with, without anyone's help, they can, they can completely find this is the track I'm comfortable with, this is what I want to see every night and do. Um, but I think that's the future. And, and, and I think the, the, the quest is to find uh, the, the, you know, how, as, a, as an entertainer or whatever, is to, is, to, is to find a big enough audience that you can support yourself doing it. But since you can, you used to have to live in Beverly Hills to do a TV show. Now, now you can live someplace that's a lot cheaper you know, and have a smaller audience. So, uh, you know, I, I, it, that's, that's the future. And less flammable. And less flammable, yeah, yeah. sadly, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, nice joke, William. Yeah, that was... <laughs> <laughs> Too far. Is that really happening, though? I'm not really sure. It's yeah, just a movie. It, it does look like a movie, yeah. It's, uh, I hope that series that, is ending soon. Yeah, me too. I mean, but that has obviously negative implications for politics. I mean, in some respects, the, the communal aspect of pop culture and media um, is practice for the real thing, which is the shared experience. You know, we're, we're all sort of tied together in one polity or, or another, um, and we aren't really good at reconciling those differences when, the, you know, when it comes to politics, or we aren't as good as, as we used to be, maybe. I mean, everything feels kind of apocalyptic right now. Maybe that's, you know, maybe this will just sort of cycle through, but, um, I mean, it does seem like the, the fragmentation is having an adverse effect on, um, on the political environment. There could be just a lot more political parties that are developed at some point. Right. Yeah, and on. Anyway. On-demand um, propaganda. On-demand. On, on yeah, exactly. Actually, well, um, I think we're probably going to wrap up. We're, we're getting uh, uh, towards the, uh, the very end, but I, I wanted to know if anybody here had any questions. Uh, the last time we did this uh, with uh, our friend Rajiv Joseph, uh, only one person asked a question, and he's sitting here on the on the podcast now, so <laughs> ask at your own risk, um, but but ask away if you have any questions for Josh or Evie or anybody. Go ahead, please. Um, it's sort of a question slash comment, um, where I think that it might be helpful to more granularly define propaganda mm. into and to recognize that it's really not so much binary and. So a lot of propaganda that's out there might be classified into black propaganda, white propaganda, and gray propaganda. And um, for example, like Evie's work with the flying fungs, I might even say it's not even propaganda, it's maybe tactical art, right? Or like some sort of like tactical, tactical activism, you know? Um, and with white propaganda, it's more, it's the kind of propaganda that's mostly truthful, but maybe it's telling like a half-truth. And then on the very other end of things, it's black propaganda, which is definitely like misinformation or disinformation, right? It's fake news or you know purposefully subversive, and everything in between is great propaganda, which might be sort of you know like you know something that looks legitimate but is not sourced or not credible at all, you know. So um, I think when you kind of pose questions like is it good, is it bad, is it you know what are the intentions of it, I think that. You know, especially with the current political landscape, there needs to be even more granular definition of like um, what the news and what the art and what the media we're looking at is. If it's you know propaganda, like what is its intention? Is it misinformation? Is it disinformation? Is it white propaganda? Um, or is it just tactical? Um, so um, I think those like sort of the levels of sophistication as we get more into sort of like really politically charged um, dynamics and landscape maybe is more helpful to look at these kinds of um, um, granularities. 
So I guess that was the comment, not really a question. <laughs> well, we were discussing it this afternoon, Christian. Yeah. We were just discussing well, what, where, what's the difference between pop, pop, <laughs> propaganda and, or advertising, or you know, where is the line? So yeah, you guys uh, defined it. I, no, I think I mean I think that's right. It's it's a, it's a spectrum. I mean it, yeah. it isn't necessarily binary. It's binary when we write notes for stuff like this because it's a more provocative question. I think, in some respects, but um, yeah, I mean there's there's a whole. I mean there is a spectrum from uh, factuality and then sort of on the other axis. I guess is whether it's positive in terms of um, you know affirming something or uh, recruiting or you know getting somebody to join your cause or whether it's negative and exclusionary and um, uh, ascribing blame, I guess. So, I mean, it's, I, mean I think there are a, a lot of variables um, that, that factor into the, the quality or type of, of propaganda. The one unifying theme, I guess, is, is that it's, it, it's based on some underlying bias and it's intended to be uh, coercive. Um, would you guys agree? Yeah, we were talking you about intent, I guess. Well, no, we were, we were talking about intent as well. Intent. And, and um, part of the intent, we were, t you know, the, the, the uh, example we stumbled upon was, you know, if you're out recruiting for a cult, um, by virtue of doing that thing, you're probably not doing the people that you're attempting to influence a favor. But if it is a, a deeply held belief of yours that this cult is going to be the last 34 people who survive the rapture, um, you're trying to do somebody a favor um, in your in your own nutty way. Um, so, you know, at what point do you know? At what point does that, pro you know, propagandizing um, in that context? You know, uh, if you really truly think that you're doing a good thing, even though you're you're possibly yeah, uh, not I mean, the the proletarian revolution being one of those things that, like, I think uh, uh, people believed in very strongly, um, and sort of the ends justified the means. If we can just get enough people on board, you know, it'll it'll happen, and, and they'll be liberated, that kind of... Um, but I think there's a difference that. between, um, you know, a, a held belief and a desire to lie a little bit to make, uh, to, to sort of garner... Um, support for for the particular. I'm saying I think it was a held belief for yeah. people. I mean, I, I yeah. I can't relate to this because I only tell the truth. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Mike, you're, you're talking a bit about devices or rhetoric and propaganda. Like we see characterization in here, exaggeration. I think dehumanization of the enemy is a big thing in a lot of this stuff. I'm curious, what did, what did you guys see if you, looking at this? And, you know, can you talk a bit more about rhetorical devices and art? You know, are we dealing with the same five for all of eternity? Technology might be changing the means, but it still comes down to exaggeration. Or, or is, um, do you feel you're getting more restricted in the modern era compared to back then? One of the scariest things that came up in this conversation this afternoon about uh, propaganda was that, um, you know, the naivete of these artists and, and the people that were volunteering for World War I, um, because they didn't know what they were getting into and they didn't know what modern warfare looked no like. Nobody did. Just but, to give them a break. Yeah, nobody did. And it was impossible to know because it hadn't happened. Right. What is the possibility that modern, modern warfare currently looks like 
it would take place on a battlefield as opposed to some other forum that's already happening. Um, for instance, you know, cybersecurity, or cyber, or, yeah. or or whatever. How, do you, how does sloganeering work in that context? I mean, if you can't if you can't actually imagine it yet, how would you? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, or even just that you know it, that you may you know you may be entering something that you have no idea that you're entering. I mean, this could be. Um, you know, and I and I bring that up not because I have a particularly um, sensible reaction to it, but because the conversation itself scared the hell out of me. Um, and so I, you know, I'd throw that out there to, to, you know, as a contextual piece that I just don't think, um, you know, I think is 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 really a frightening thought. But the other thing that's really frightening and really exceptional is this show. I just want to bring it back to the show because the work in here is made by the hands of artists that were there and saw the, the grim reality of death and um, these are very intimate sized pieces and um, it's something felt and um, that's something that's I think different from a lot of art today where you can produce it digitally and um, just to just talk about you know what we're doing and what the result, potential result of things like if there a message in in, um, in these pieces, and we can talk about propaganda. But um, well, Evie was alluding earlier to the fact that you know somebody's tweets may be uh, you know uh, may at some point down the line, um, and you know taking it back to to what we often talk about, which is music. I mean, you know nobody thought that concert posters or album art or anything of that nature was going to be uh, revered as art 30 years later or 40 years later, um, how do we know what of this particular era is going to be um, thought of as art and, you know, perpetuity or, or later on down the road? Consensus. I, it is, but, but... We don't know. I don't know. And it will be really surprising, I hope. Yeah, I don't know. I hope I hope I hope it's not tweets. I hope I hope no, you're wrong on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's an uncertain future. Anyway, thanks for the question. I'm sorry we didn't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Oh. Uh, uh, probably more in the commentary and trying to see what your your response is. That um, it's kind of what the role of art and culture and what, what comes out to be propaganda. The propaganda tends to be, I think, at least in one political for the most part, and after the fact, uh, what is called, you know, the historical division of that, and the losers had propaganda, and the winners probably did not. So it's, it's, you know, that's an oversimplification. But if you look back at Europe pre-World War I, um, the role of artists in the 19th century were all, not all, that's a overgeneralization, over many of them were creating art that was very much supportive of the things that culminated in the horror of World War I, in terms of celebration of nationalism, pan-globalization, uh, pan, uh, and their versions of that, uh, racial superiority, you saw it in literature, you saw it in architecture, you saw it in poetry um, at that time. And then that hit uh, and you know, knocked the hell out of it, really, in many, many respects. And then the artists come out, came through that, came out with a very different angle to that, and yet, that got lost again 30 years later, 23 years later for a while, but still through there. And so, you know, art book is a precursor to the horrors we have, including our tweets, I suppose, 
uh, and may well be the rescuer afterwards if I have any different sensibilities about that. I'm not so sure I can predict it very well. Um, and um, just, just an observation and a, a thought and a reaction for you all who are pretty much engrossed in both from the literary and artistic creative side. Well, I think so. That was just extremely eloquent. Yes. I do think that you know, what we consider or what is often considered, um, you know, not necessarily fine art, but you know, things like action movies and TV shows uh, you know, have, have sort of uh, rung this very jingoistic bell over the last, you know, since, you know, back to the 80s, but certainly since 9-11. And you know maybe some of that is what's manifesting itself now. I mean, there has been this sort of, um, you know, this. There was a free pass for a while to vilify certain um, groups and to, um, you know, be extremely patriotic. And um, you know, in leaning that way, they, you know, you're playing to to what people want to hear and that we're winning and that we're going to win. But it also uh, sort of, uh, you know, set the table for, for a lot of what we're seeing right now. Um, you know, that's just one art form, and I, uh, but I'm sure there's a... I, 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 the other way to look at it, from what the gentleman was saying, was, is that the art was reflective of the jingoism and the nationalism and everything and all these different isms that, you know, culminated in the horror... And then we get the stuff in, in this room, in particular, where it, which just reflects the horror, which it, it makes the art and the artist, and whether they're the satirists or the you know actual artists, seem more like parasites than anyone actually pushing. That they're they're just reflecting the national mood uh, rather than actually shaping it. That it, everyone's Reacting. yeah everyone's making you know Rambo movies because that's how everybody is feeling you know at that time. <laughs> And uh, not that Rambo movies made us hate Russia, but, you know, we were hating Russia, so, you know, let's make a, a damn Rambo movie. No, Red Dawn made us hate Russia. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Red Dawn's great. It's great. I mean, when you say, like, we, I mean, it's like the government, the America, United States was hating. Just, uh, just, to, just to say. Oh, not everybody was hating not Russia. Everybody all, right, all right, all right, all right. Wyndham told me before the show that you hated Russia. So I mean, <laughs> well, I might. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Bruckheimer and Simpson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to deflect. I see. I see. My dazzle <laughs> So anyway, I think, um, I think we're going to wrap that up then. So um, thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. This was uh, really fun. And, and thanks especially to uh, Evie and Josh and to the folks here at the Met who have uh, hosted us now twice and have made this the premier podcasting venue in all of New York City. So thanks very much. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers, Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>